0: August 31, 1983, a Korean Airline 747 disappears during a routine flight between the United States and South Korea, killing 269 people on board. July 17, 2014, a Malaysian Airlines 777 crashes while flying over the eastern Ukraine, killing 298. July 3, 1988, an Iran Air Airbus A300 crashes into the Persian Gulf shortly after takeoff from Tehran, killing 290. All three of these planes are brought down in flight by military missiles. What chain of events could possibly lead to a military shooting down a passenger airplane? Find out with us on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down, the podcast about air disasters. Uh, I'm Gus and I'm here with Chris. Hello. Hi Chris. And uh, we're here to talk about, uh, in this particular episode, to talk about military missiles shooting down planes. Uh, As always, I want to remind everyone, if you like this podcast, uh, make sure you subscribe and uh, tell a friend about it. Give us a rating wherever you download podcasts. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Only give us good ratings, please.
1: Yeah, five star.
0: Five star all the way. Unless it goes to 10 stars. Then, the t- then, <laughs> then 10. ten. <laughs> Depends on the scale. So, um, you know, this is a relatively new podcast. And, uh, several. you know, we've been trying to figure out how we're going to do it for a while. And a few months ago, when we finally got the green light, we knew we were going to make the podcast. Uh, I sat down with Dennis, who does all of our research. Hi, Dennis. He's right over there. Uh, I sat down with Dennis, and we wanted to figure out what incidents we wanted to cover and what disasters. And uh, I, I pitched the idea of having this episode where we mm-hmm. just talk about different incidents where military shoots down a passenger airplane and then literally the next day there another one of these incidents happened. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in January 8th there was a Ukraine International Airlines mm-hmm. flight that got shot down uh, when leaving Iran on its way to Kiev. Uh, that, that was a fairly recent flight. We didn't include it in this uh, roundup just because we still don't really know everything uh, that led to that. I mean, we kind of do. Uh, I mean, Iran was on heightened alert because the U.S. had assassinated an Iranian general, and then Iran retaliated with missile yeah. strikes. The Iranian um, military thought that this passenger airplane was a cruise missile and shot it down. That's what we think happened so far. But anyway, so it's 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 strange to see that this is something that still happens. Yeah, albeit it's very rare. Yeah, maybe maybe like season. Four, we'll cover that one. will cover that one, maybe. <laughs> if, 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 but who knows how much more information we'll get on that, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's really messed up. So we decided to focus on these other three that, uh, that we do know about. So the first one I want to talk about is uh, Korean Airlines Flight 007. It was uh, in 1983. It was a 747 that was flying from uh, JFK in New York to Seoul. But this was during the height of the Cold War. So okay. normally, the, the best way to get from JFK to Seoul is to fly over Soviet airspace hmm. but because of the Cold War they decided they didn't want to do that that's why they stopped in Alaska on the way so they flew from JFK to Anchorage, Alaska
1: then from Anchorage, Alaska to Seoul were, were all flights doing that at that time yeah I think most flights just were. like just stay out of, just avoid Russia yeah it, Soviet Union sorry <laughs>
0: <laughs> just to be safe I think they wanted to uh to just avoid that if at all possible so um the flight was you know like I said flew from JFK to Anchorage no problem then uh from going from Anchorage to Seoul uh they got shot down. The flight was crewed by, you know, all very accomplished pilots, you know, they all had tons of flying time, very, um, there were, there were, you know, no, nobody was, was new, nobody was fresh. So there was, a of the 269 people on board, 23 were active crew and six were deadhead crew who were just, you know, hitching a ride. Uh, and then amongst the passengers, 105 of them were South Koreans and 62 of them were Americans. And in fact, one of those Americans on that flight was a U.S. congressman from Georgia, oh. uh, Larry McDonald, uh, who, of course, perished uh, along with everyone else. And then it was a smattering of people from other countries as well. When you said
1: deadhead crew, what does that mean?
0: It's like a uh, crew who's just hitching a ride. They're not active crew. Uh-huh. They're just like, they work for the airline and they're probably just hitching a ride to get back, in to this case, to, some, yeah. right, and to wherever they're going to need to fly from next. So before we get to how all of this happened, I want to talk a little bit about autopilot on a plane. Mm-hmm. So this in this particular flight, there's two different modes of autopilot we're going to cover. When this plane took off, mm-hmm. the autopilot was operating in what's called heading mode. The pilot puts in a heading and the autopilot follows that. So it's like saying, you tell the plane, go west, and the plane just kind of, in a dumb fashion, goes west. Okay. Right? You tell it what degree it's going to go, and it's going to go in that direction at whatever altitude, and whatever speed you put in. There's another mode it's called... It's like cruise control. Kind of like cruise control.
1: Right. You just hit...
0: your it, set. It's going to go straight. Yeah. It's not going to take any turns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just, Luckily in the air, you re, you don't normally have to take turns, but in this case you do. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you don't want to end up over the Soviet Union. So the other mode that we're going to talk about is INS, which is uh, inertial navigation system. And in the INS, it's like a smarter version of cruise control. When you turn it on, you basically put waypoints in. And it knows I'm going to fly to this waypoint. Then when I get there, I'm going to turn... Appropriately to get to the next waypoint and go there and you program a string of waypoints to get where you're going. So in this particular flight, uh, when it took off from Anchorage, the VOR beacon was not operational. So the VOR beacon kind of one of those waypoints that you would put into the inertial navigation system. Mm-hmm. But that's not a big deal. Happens all the time. There was a maintenance issue with it. So what the plane was supposed to do was it was supposed to fly via, they, they had a heading. So they were supposed to fly via heading mode to the next waypoint. Then when mm-hmm. they got there switch over to inertial navigation system because the, because the the beacon was not working right so the first beacon is not working so they have to go via heading to the to the next beacon and then turn on INS mode uh and that that next beacon was 346 miles away so that's why they had to do that like it wasn't strong enough for, they couldn't pick it up so air traffic control told them to take a heading of 220 which again we t- we've covered this before but if you imagine a big circle mm-hmm. uh yeah there's 360 degrees in a circle so let's say up like north would be zero, down south would be 180, left west would be 270. So 220 is kind of between south and west. It's kind of a southwest heading. Okay. So uh, they they flew in a heading of 220 two, to to pick up the next nav point, which was Bethel. That, they all have names like that. <laughs> so they really had to go to the Bethel waypoint and then they were going to switch over to INS. They take off, put in their heading and fly towards uh, Bethel. The train of thought here or the common thought according to the International Civil Aviation Organization is, you know, they ran a simulation on this flight and they came to the conclusion that the autopilot never left heading mode. They think either the crew never switched the autopilot to INS mode or if they did switch it, but maybe the plane was kind of off course by then, so Uh it didn't kick in properly. Uh, But for whatever reason, the autopilot didn't transition to INS and the crew never noticed. Oh. So they were deviating just a little bit. So 50 minutes after takeoff, uh, there was a military radar, a U.S. military radar picked them up and noticed that they were like, 12 miles off course, mm-hmm. not a big deal, whatever, but and the military doesn't know what's going on in the plane They think maybe the plane is just doing its thing, right? They know it's a US plane. They know it's a US plane, right. they yeah. a US plane. And because they were slightly off course They were out of range of their uh, very high frequency radios to contact air traffic control So they tried to ask another flight which was Korean Airlines 15 to relay messages to air traffic control on their behalf There's A whole bunch of reasons here, but I'm gonna try to simplify it uh, Korean Airlines 15 used high frequency radios which have a higher range than very high frequency but there's vulnerable interference and static. So there's probably some miscommunication they didn't understand. And The end result is 07 couldn't directly communicate with air traffic control. So there's really no way they, for them to know. There's no way for anyone to tell them. <laughs> they, they 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 probably should have noticed that they were off course, but, but they didn't notice they for didn't, whatever reason. They
1: didn't get the info.
0: Right. So halfway between that Bethel waypoint I mentioned and the next waypoint, uh, the plane passed through the southern portion of the North American Aerospace Defense Command buffer zone. I know that's a... That's a mouthful. But basically it's a zone that's off limits to civilian aircraft because, again, this is the height of the Cold War and they're kind of flying between US airspace, international airspace and Soviet airspace. Yeah. So there's this zone that there's not supposed to, that no civilian aircraft supposed to fly through. They just entered it. Um, So they cross the international date line and it becomes September 1st for them. They continue to fly. And you know, it's one of those things where if you start off a little bit off course over time, the further you go, the more and more off course you get. So that's what started to happen. So now they're about sixty miles north of the waypoint they're supposed to be. <laughs> so they're 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 slowly drifting further and further off, and they start to approach the Kamchatka Peninsula of the Soviet Union. Have you ever played? You ever play Risk, Chris? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know I've, that little. I've, the, I've always won. <laughs> we'll, congr- <laughs> we'll have to play sometime. <laughs> but if you think about like a Risk map, you think about that east. Or you think about a world map. I'm being stupid here. If you Think about a world map, <laughs> but specifically, but <laughs> specifically, you think about Risk. Kamchatka is that like that little peninsula off the eastern soviet union uh-huh. uh that like sticks out kind of towards uh, alaska well that's, that's where they're flying okay so remember like i said cold war very tense time the soviet union was very suspicious that you know reagan was plotting secret nuclear attacks the u.s was you know worried that the soviets were to launch uh, secret nuclear attacks so at the time the u.s had just started the largest naval exercise in the north pacific called fleet x-83 and because of this exercise there were a bunch of u.s aircraft that would overfly Soviet military installations in the Kuril Islands, which are kind of close there. And uh, if Soviet military leaders were unable to shoot these planes down, they would be dismissed or reprimanded. And, and to add to the tension, at the same time this Flight 007 was flying towards the Kamchatka Peninsula, the Soviets were testing a, a missile and the US Air Force had a recon plane in the area spying on this missile test. So there's just a lot of crap going on lot behind the scenes. Right. And this, the, the recon plane that the US Air Force had out there uh, was what they call an RC-135, and the RC-135 is just a military version of a Boeing 707. So it's like it's also a Boeing plane, it's got four engines, the 747 has that hump on the top, it's kind mm-hmm. of uh, iconic. 707 doesn't have that, so they're a little different, but at a quick glance, if they're made by the same manufacturer, have the same number of engines, could be a little confusing. So a restricted airspace can allow civilian aircraft to fly through if they've been granted access by whoever controls that airspace, right? Uh, No civilian aircraft can enter prohibited airspace. It's a little different. So 120 miles off the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula was the beginning of restricted airspace. And then prohibited airspace began 62 miles from the coast. So there's like a little buffer where it's like you can ask for permission to get in there. And then once you get closer, it's like you're not allowed in there at all. Right. So Korean Airlines 007 had entered prohibited airspace. And when they were 81 miles off the coast, four MiG-23s were sent to intercept them. What? So uh, four Soviet fighters gotcha. were, were scrambled and sent to, to intercept a civilian airplane. Because they think they're being attacked. Right. Or they might be. They're just like, what is this? Right. This, the, this plane entered restricted airspace without asking permission. They don't know what's going on. There's a US spy plane somewhere in the area. So they scrambled the MiGs, the Soviet fighter jets. Uh, But the jets have trouble finding the aircraft because, and because they were low on fuel, they had to return back. And it turns out that because of a storm a few days earlier, uh, some of the warning radar had been knocked out for the Soviets. So that's why they had trouble finding the Mm. plane. And the Soviet Air Force Captain Alexander Zuyev explained that they had lied to Moscow. They had said that the radar was repaired, but, (laughs) but really it wasn't because they didn't want to get in trouble. So Moscow didn't know that the radar's down, but the radar's not working. So there's these four fighter planes looking for the Korean Airlines uh, plane and they can't find it. So the plane ends up flying over the peninsula and over the sea of— um, there's, there's a lot of Russian names in here, so I apologize. I'm probably gonna okay. get some of these wrong. So, so Korean Airlines flies over the Kamchatka Peninsula and then flies back over the sea of Akkhost. Uh, and at this point, you know, they're out of Soviet airspace again. But they're now viewed as a threat, as a military aircraft, because they've flown over the Soviet Union. So General Valery Kamensky, who's the commander of the Soviet Far East District Air Defense Forces, was fine to shoot down the plane, but only if it was positively identified as not a passenger plane. So you wanted to make sure.
1: Is it common for the Soviet Union and American, like, to just be shooting each other's planes down at this time? To shoot down? No.
0: But there was a sort of, and there still is to this day, you'll hear about this sometimes, where the U.S. will send planes right up to the border and then turn them around and come back. In fact, I think just a couple of weeks ago, Canada and the U.S. had to escort a Russian plane away from uh, American airspace out by Alaska. Hmm. So it was common for militaries to get close to each other. It's, it's like, do you, you it's have like, any siblings? Like, I'm not touching you. <laughs> I'm not touching you. Like that kind it's of thing, like right? chicken or something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh, oh. Right. In this case, because of the Cold War and the fear of secret nuclear or sneak nuclear attacks, they were extra sensitive to it. So, like I mentioned, uh, Valery Komensky wanted to make sure if they were going to shoot it down, it wasn't a passenger plane. But uh, his subordinate, General Anatoly Kurnikov, who was commander of the Sokol Air Base, uh, argued that the plane had already breached their airspace once, and if it did it again, he was going to shoot it down. He was like, there's no excuse for this, right? Well, unfortunately for Flight 007, they re-entered Soviet airspace flying over Sakhalin Island. So they're just flying straight. They're flying Uh, in a straight line. And they have no idea. No idea. They're oblivious to the fact. I mean... It, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit, I think, but you think about it from a pilot's perspective. When they're flying this route from Anchorage to Seoul, at this point, they should not be flying over any land. Uh-huh. You would think if they would, and it's night, so maybe they can't see so well. But if they were to look out and see like, oh, why are we over land? Like maybe you'd be like, oh, you'd be like, this, that's wrong. Right, that's that, not the ocean. Right. This, yeah. we're, we're not where we should be. So the second time they re-enter uh, Soviet airspace. Um, the Soviet Union scrambles more fighters. They scramble three SU-15 fighters and uh, a MiG-23, I believe, and, but they managed to find the flight this time. They made yeah. visual contact with flight 007. And there's actually interviews with, one, with the, the pilot who fired the missile that brought this plane down. And in interviews, he says that he first fired four bursts of warning shots from his uh, gun, not a missile, like four bursts of a uh, machine gun.
1: Oh, just like, da-da-da-da, like, hey,
0: go away. Right. Like, trying to get their attention. But the gun was loaded with armor-piercing rounds, not incendiary shells, and it's night, so, like, they might not shine. But the pilot argues that there were flashes from his uh, machine gun on the plane. Like, that's bright, that that should get attention. And uh, at this point, the Korean Airlines managed to get in contact with Tokyo Center, uh, the air traffic control, because they're getting closer, you know, at this point. And uh, they requested a higher flight level for fuel reasons, and they were cleared to climb to a higher flight level. Wait, the plane? The Korean Airlines plane. So they're they're... Just going about their business. Right.
1: And they're like, hey, can we go higher?
0: Right, yeah, Because they, they want to try to conserve some flight. So they requested clearance, too, and they were allowed to. They started to climb and lost some speed. Uh, the jet, and the jets who were following them flew past because, you know, the plane slowed down and they, they thought this was an evasive maneuver on the part of the Korean Airlines plane oh. to try to get away from them. And the Korean Airlines plane was getting close to leaving their airspace again. so The general didn't want this to happen, so he gave them orders to shoot it down. The fighter jet moved behind the plane and fired two K-8 air-to-air missiles. After impact, uh, the flight began to climb due to damaged cables in the elevators. And we've kind of talked about this in other incidents before. Uh, It had speed, but no elevator control. Oh, so it just just starts to climb. We've talked about this before. uh, This might have been the beginning of like a fugoid cycle. I don't know. I'm speculating at that point. Uh, The autopilot was disengaged. The plane began to descend for four minutes to an altitude of 16,424 feet. It stayed at this altitude for five more minutes until the crew lost control. Uh, they then began to rapidly descend in spirals and broke apart midair and crashed into the ocean just off the west coast of Sakhalin Island, and everyone on board died instantly uh, due to blunt trauma.
1: Wow. So, so it was just a confusion. They didn't even know they were in the Soviet Union, and they didn't even know that they were doing evasive maneuvers. They were just flying their plane. Right. It's unfortunate and, circumstance. And then Soviet Union's like, just take them out They're They're trying to run away. They're trying to right. evade. Yeah. Man, it, uh, Again, like many of these, it's uh, just one mistake after another
0: going on here. And, uh, you know, the Soviets actually didn't acknowledge shooting down the plane until September 6th, uh, which was sometime later, and they denied knowing the location where the plane went down. Um, but nine years later, they re- it was revealed that the Soviet Union immediately sent two search and
1: rescue operations within the first 30 minutes to that location. So uh, did, did uh, the U.S. not do anything to retaliate, or what was the, the, the fallout from this? Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. But the question you ask is interesting, right?
0: What is the U.S.'s level of involvement here? This is a South Korean airline, departed from a U.S. airport, but it should have been in international waters, but instead was over Soviet airspace. Yeah. So it was like, what is the U.S.'s jurisdiction or what's their responsibility in this? So South Korea actually designated the United States and Japan uh, to be the search and salvage agents, which makes it illegal for the Soviet Union to salvage the plane. Uh, If it was found outside of Soviet waters, so and and both sides were racing to try to get their hands on the flight data recorder to to see what happened. The Soviets uh, interfered with the search and salvage attempts from the U.S. by sending false flag and light signals. They would threaten to board U.S. chartered uh, vessels, and they would attempt to ram South Korean uh, rigs. Uh, They would remove the U.S. sonar. I mean, they just tried to be annoying and tried to make it as difficult as possible for anyone else to find anything related to the. the crash and eventually and and eventually they did find the flight data recorder but they hid it it wasn't until 1992 that after the fall of the soviet union that russian president boris yeltsin as a gesture of goodwill released the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder
1: oh so what what did the what did the pilots think when i mean were they like aware like were they immediately aware of what had happened like oh crap so if you um you
0: can read transcripts of the (laughs) cockpit Mm -hmm. voice recording actually and if you read them It doesn't seem like they have any idea what happened in fact like right after the explosion you can read on the cockpit voice recorder transcript Mm -hmm. they're asking what happened what they're uh, you know they tried to lower their throttle and and they're just troubleshooting trying to figure out what's happening and calling out like they don't have control or everything that's going wrong with the flight so Mm -hmm. they had no idea that they were that they were actually hit by a missile so as a result of all of this a lot of things actually changed Uh, the u.s decided to use military radars and extend the air traffic control coverage from 200 miles to 1,200 miles out of Anchorage. And the FAA set up a secondary radar system uh, on an island out there, St. Paul Island. And in 1986, the United States, Japan, and the Soviet Union set up a joint air traffic control system to monitor traffic over the North Pacific. So this gave the Soviet Union formal responsibility to monitor civilian traffic. That way they would be more aware Mm. uh, of what was coming into their airspace and set up direct communication link between the controllers of all those three countries. That way.
1: They, they, yeah. there, there was no there's, miscommunication. There's no harm in letting the Soviet union know about just commercial air mm-hmm. air flights, right? Right. And uh, and in fact,
0: as a result, as a direct result of this, a couple of weeks later, on September 16th, 1983, uh, President Reagan announced that uh, GPS would be made available to civilian use for free. And uh, the, and also the interface for autopilot on big airliners like this was changed to make it more obvious as to whether it was operating in heading mode or INS mode. Uh, so, a lot of things did change as a result
1: of this and to try to minimize it. When you say GPS was made available for public consumption, does that mean like all the GPS is in our phones and like that technology? Yeah, the reason
0: that civilians can use GPS now is directly as a result of that. Wow. Because before that it was just a purely a military application. Wow. So, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's unbelievable and that's why now, like if they had GPS at the time, obviously on that plane. They would have known. They would clearly see. It's weird to think that they just had no idea where they were. Yeah, and in the early, I mean, (laughs) okay, I'm gonna get on a slight tangent here. The 747 flew for a very long time, and in fact, when the 747 first started flying, they had um, a hatch in the cockpit Mm -hmm. so that the pilots could use a sextant to look at the stars and try to determine uh, what their position was. (laughs)
1: Like, like Like, like a sextant, like you picture people on ships you know, in the
0: 1500s. they were still using that right. in, in the 80s? Well, no, the 747 is much older than that. So I don't know about in 83 if they were
1: still using it or not. But when it was built, they had yeah, Just like, hey, ability. in case you
0: need to check the stars. Right. Wow. The, you would get your uh, flight engineer to <laughs> to go up and <laughs> look out the sextant to make sure you were you're in the correct position. That's
1: wild. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, it's totally a different era where, you know, we've advanced. We have much more technology much more reliable technology now although i guess sextants i mean are really it, reliable yeah yeah. yeah yeah i was like it's <laughs> so not that it's reliable it's just uh slower <laughs> yeah you just it just requires a little bit of math okay so that was that was a mouthful that was a lot but that's korean airlines 007 there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that flight too i'm not going to get into all of them but mm-hmm. to this day the soviet pilot who shot down the plane contends that it was not uh, a commercial airline flight And there are people on the Soviet side who say that it was really a spy plane. And there's people on the U.S. side who say it was an assassination attempt against that congressman. There's a bunch of different crazy conspiracy theories. We're not going to get into all of those. Uh I'm I'm just saying, if you are interested, you can go read crazy conspiracy theories about this. We're just talking about the facts. Okay. Okay, but that's it.
1: That's The facts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Chris did air quotes. (laughs) 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 Okay, okay, but that's it. That's Korean Airlines 07. We're going to move on. To something much more contemporary, which was uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. This was actually very recent. This was um, July 17th, 2014. So this was just less than six years ago now. I, I mean, this was a big thing in the news, right? It was a, it was a huge deal. And uh, that was, a, in fact, that year in 2014, that's the same year that Malaysia Airlines had lost uh, the Flight 370 that disappeared in March of that year. Oh, maybe that's
1: the one I'm thinking of.
0: We're actually going to cover that uh, in a later episode this season so make sure you if you're interested in 370 make (laughs) sure you come back check out that episode we'll be talking about that quite a bit but Malaysia flight 17 uh like I said July 2014 uh was shot down over eastern Ukraine so and at the time and still to this day uh there's high tensions between uh Russia and Ukraine because you know getting into the whole geopolitical landscape here uh Russia invaded eastern Ukraine or they annexed the Crimean Peninsula It's been this ongoing thing, it's still going on to this day, you know, Russian separatists fighting against the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian government trying to suppress this. So, like I said, high tension in this area and in early March 2014, airliners had started avoiding airspace in eastern Ukraine for safety concerns because of all this armed conflict that's going on. It's it's essentially a war. Yeah. I mean, not essentially, it 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 is an actual war that's going on right there. And in April, the International Civil Aviation Organization warned governments that flying over southeastern Ukraine was a risk, and the FAA uh, issued restrictions on flights over Crimea and advised that airlines should exercise extreme caution when flying over other parts of the Ukraine. Uh, and there's a, an, a region there known as the Donetsk region, which is in eastern Ukraine, which is not part of the warning uh, areas that were issued. So in the seven days before Flight 17, there were about 900 flights spread out across 37 airlines that flew over this region with no problem. So Okay. Most people were flying just fine.
1: No problem. Were they warning people that, hey, we're on our way?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, they were were following their normal procedure. But, you know, typically people on the ground, military is probably not monitoring or paying attention to that. And there was a lot of, like I said, there was a lot of tension in the area. Recently, right before that, on June 14th, a Ukrainian Air Force military airliner was shot down while on approach to uh, Luhansk International Airport, which resulted in the death of 40 troops and nine crew members. On June 29th, Russian news agencies reported that a book missile system had been obtained by insurgents after they took control of a Ukrainian air defense base. And on the same day, a tweet by the Russian-backed Donetsk People Republic claimed that they had this missile system. Mm -hmm. uh, That tweet's now deleted. That tweet's been removed
1: so Wait, so they were just tweeting out that they have a missile defense right that they had uh they had some missiles just like hey guys just so you know we have weapons right though
0: we got missiles so on july 14th a ukrainian air force uh an-26 was shot down flying at 21,300 feet and the militia claimed it had been shot down with that book missile launcher and then on the 16th another ukrainian aircraft was shot down uh this time by a russian mig-29 jet with an air-to-air missile so you see there's a lot of conflict in the air going on here. This is all military stuff. That's yeah, but this shot. is all military yeah. that's going yeah. on at this point. Uh, European countries were warned by the Ukrainian government that flying over eastern Ukraine was dangerous. So on July 17th, on the day that this happened, an Associated Press journalist saw a book missile launcher uh, in a town in the Donetsk region, as well as seven separatist tanks. So the book M1 was being operated by a man, quote, with unfamiliar fatigues and a distinctive Russian accent. Take from that what you will. Hmm. Uh, there was uh, a close-by battle was taking place, which is why the missile launcher might have been in that area. Um, the Ukraine had restricted flights not to fly below thirty-two thousand feet, but the nearby Russian airspace was closed below fifty-three thousand feet due to armed conflict in Ukraine. So essentially, if they close it below fifty-three thousand feet, they're saying don't fly through here. Yeah. Airliners normally fly. 40,000 feet, somewhere in that range.
1: So, is it is it difficult for uh, just a commercial airline to get that high up to where they're above the conflict space?
0: Uh, so, they would be able to easily get above thirty-two thousand feet on the Ukraine side, mm-hmm. but on the Russian side, they could not get that high to fifty-three thousand feet. Okay, at that altitude, there's just the air's not dense enough to support lift. You know, the higher you get, the less dense air is, and you need a certain amount of density in the air. To, to, to generate lift, to yeah. let the, the plane go up. So you have to have like a special plane that can do that. Right, and there are some military planes that can do that, uh, but a commercial airliner, not going to happen. So the Dutch Safety Board actually asked uh, Russia for a detailed explanation of why they had closed their airspace below 53,000 feet, but they never really got an explanation on it. And uh, it's kind of speculated that the Ukraine was continuing to let flights fly over this area because they would receive what's called overflight fees from commercial airliners. So basically, airlines would pay them to fly over their airspace. Oh. So that might be why they hadn't really closed it. Okay. So that's all set up. That's all background. Okay. Now, now on to the actual incident. So Flight 17 was cruising at 33,000 feet over the Ukraine near Dnipropetrovsk, yes, <laughs> uh, which was uh, east of Donetsk. Uh, ATC asked them to climb to 35,000 feet, uh, but they asked to remain at 33,000 feet and they were approved. So they are flying at 33,000 feet. This would have caused you know, some separation conflict with the Singapore Airlines flight that was nearby, but air traffic control moved that flight to the altitude of 35,000 instead. So, they were trying
1: to keep space between the planes. Okay. So, there's a couple of planes coming through this area, and right. they are like, hey, just, you stay over there, you stay over there, we'll be good. Right. There's mandated minimum distances yeah. that they have to stay apart. So,
0: air traffic control is kind of moving them around. So, flight 17 asked if they could deviate 20 miles north due to weather, and they were approved, and then the crew then asked to climb to 34,000 feet, but that request was denied. Again, this is all Typical. It happens. This kind of stuff happens all the time. At 419 p.m. local time, uh, the control notice at Flight 17 was off course by about 3.6 miles to the north and, you know, told them, you know, get back on course. And
1: north is going to be closer to Russia, right?
0: Well, north is closer to conflict.
1: We can say that.
0: Okay. <laughs> I don't want to call anything in this area r- Russia or Ukraine.
1: It's, well, it's, it's, it would where, be it's,
0: closer to Russia. Well, Russia's to the east, but okay. Russia's, Russia's also to the north. It's complicated. <laughs> Look at a map. Uh, it's supplemental information. It's closer to bad. It's closer. To, it's closer to bad. It's closer to where they, to where they don't want to be. Uh, so uh, air traffic control tells them to get back on uh, course. And then the air traffic control calls the Russian air traffic control to request clearance to transfer this flight over to them to Russian airspace because that's the direction they're flying. They're flying from Amsterdam out to Kuala Lumpur, so they have to fly in, this, in that direction. Uh, At 4.20pm air traffic control contacted flight 17 to transfer them over to tell them contact Russian air traffic control and has them change frequencies, but they didn't receive any response. From Russia? From from the uh, flight. From uh, from from flight flight. 17. Right. They were trying to call them. Because at the same time at 4.20pm a book ground-to-air missile was launched and detonated outside the cockpit of flight 17 causing explosive decompression. Uh, the tail and cockpit broke off the plane and all three sections disintegrated as they fell to the ground and there were no survivors on this flight. So they just, they just got blown up? Right. The, like, real quick? Mm-hmm, the The, the missile was fired by the separatists on the ground and it exploded right outside the cockpit, uh, right, uh, if I recall per- correctly, on the left side of the cockpit right by where the pilot sits. And the way these missiles work is they don't have to make direct contact with an airplane. Mm-hmm. They're loaded with shrapnel and, uh, and other things. So it exploded in a pretty deadly range. Where it just showered the cockpit the front part of the plane with shrapnel probably killed the crew instantly and then the plane broke apart into three pieces man and
1: so there was no warning they were just like in the wrong spot and then they just got blown up right it wasn't there wasn't it wasn't like the first one where there was like planes chasing them down and yeah
0: they they just were in the wrong spot and probably got shot down by someone who was a little uh over eager so uh, the day after the crash, uh, 181 of the 298 bodies had been found and uh, some, you know, they were observed being placed in body bags and loaded on the trucks because where this fell, it was over where armed conflict was going on. So it was difficult for any investigators to get in and do any kind of examination. It took several days. So finally on July 21st, pro-Russian rebels allowed the Dutch investigators to examine bodies and by this time 282 of them had been recovered, uh, 87 fragments found and 16 bodies were still missing. So by December 5th, 292 of the bodies have been identified. And this was like an ongoing thing. You know, they, they kept going on. and um, I believe at this point there's only two Dutch victims who have not been identified. But everyone died. But yeah, everyone died. So the Dutch Safety Board issued in their final report that the crash was caused by a book missile. And this actually launched the largest criminal investigation in Dutch history uh, around this downing of this flight. Uh, it consisted of Belgium, Ukraine, Australia, and Malaysia who all formed a joint investigation team. And in September 2016, this team found that the book missile system was transported from Russia to pro-Russian rebels on the day of the crash and then transported back into Russia with one less missile.
1: Oh. Uh, So Russia's just sending weapons down to just like fuck shit up?
0: Right. They're they're helping these rebels who are trying to... Yeah. Who are pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine. They're trying to help them in their efforts. I think publicly, of course, Russia says they're not doing that and uh, it's all... It's all lies, but I mean, the, this joint investigation team did a really thorough job. And in May 2018, they confirmed that the missile system came from the Russian 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade in Kursk, like they identified like what unit uh, it came from. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense stated that no Russian book ever crossed the border and that Putin said they will analyze the conclusion, but they will only acknowledge the conclusion if they were allowed to be part of the investigation as well. <laughs> so of course they, 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 yeah. weren't, they weren't allowed to. Um, and uh, on May 25th of 2018 the Netherlands and Australian governments issued a statement holding Russia responsible uh, for its part in the crash uh, The UK European Union United States and the German government all support this and requested Russia to explain the tragedy and take responsibility But of course Putin only reiterates that Russia was not involved in this and that's it I mean well then what else so on June 19th the Dutch uh, public prosecution service charged four people with murder in connection to the shootdown of uh, flight 17 uh, three Russians and one Ukrainian. And in February of 2020, just here very recently, uh, they were formally charged and summoned for investigation. And the trial began on March 9th. So just a couple of weeks oh, ago. Wow. But none of the accused are in attendance because uh, Russia deny, continues to deny responsibility and Russia does not allow extradition.
1: So they're all just in Russia be, right. right now. So the trial started, but There's the, the defendants aren't present. So they can still do a criminal case even though it was like a wartime thing? Right, because the plane that was
0: shot down was wasn't not a military part of, okay, plane. Right. And uh, and this, you know, this this whole thing, of course, there's, this, there's more conspiracy theories about this flight as well. There's a lot of Russian funded outlets who try to throw out these conspiracy theories saying that the Ukraine shot the plane down and they're trying to blame pro-Russia rebels. Like mm. there's all this misinformation, like you always hear about it yeah. uh, all the time now about just um, conspiracy theories and I hate to say the term fake news or.
1: Yeah, but there's uh, always some reason why the story isn't true.
0: Right. Uh, but it's pretty definitively, without a doubt, it, it's, it happened uh, how the joint investigation team said it happened. Yeah. It, that seems to be universally accepted except by everyone except Russia. Okay, I know we've been through a lot. We have one more. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are all really interesting because they're all very different. So this last one I want to talk about, uh, is an Iran air flight 655 this happened back in 1988 So I think this one's interesting because like the first two you think like oh well It was the Soviet Union and Russia, you know, mm-hmm. of course they do fucked up things But uh, this flight was actually shot down by the United States. Oh, I think a lot of people forget that this happened
1: So th- I was wondering why 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 are
0: they out of order? Why are you yeah? Do you from- I, I saved this one <laughs> for last to show like you know, the U.S. has been responsible for this kind of thing, too. This was in July 3rd, 1988. It was an Airbus A300 uh, flight from Tehran to Dubai, which is a really short flight. Yeah. This this happened over the Persian Gulf. And the Persian Gulf, you know, is a really narrow strip of water. And a lot of the world's oil passes through there via yeah. oil tankers. So the U.S. has a vested interest to send military uh, assets out there to try to protect tankers. And the, 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 it can get really narrow at at one point. And... It's, it's, it's very contentious there. Also, to add to complication, at this time, this is when the, um, there was a war going on between Iraq and Iran, and there were extra heightened tensions because in May of 87, there was an attack on a U.S. ship there that killed 37 American soldiers, and so the U.S. had ramped up its military presence there, and, Everyone was really on edge. One of the ships that was there at the time, it was the USS Vincennes. It's a missile cruiser. And at the time, it was a pretty new ship. Uh, Some of the other ships that were there were a little older, previous generation. But this one was a a fairly new missile cruiser. It was passing through the Strait of Hormuz, which is that narrow little strip of water I was talking about. It's where things Uh get really compressed. Was returning from escort duty, so it's coming back into the Persian Gulf. And uh, the ship had a helicopter that was deployed and had received some small arms gunfire from some uh, like patrol vessels in the area. So the Vincennes started moving to engage those little boats, uh, and it had accidentally violated Omani waters, and Oman asked them to leave. So they had to go back out into international waters. So the Vincennes then entered Iranian territorial water, which was admitted since the helicopter was fired on when over international waters. So mm-hmm. they kind of chased these small boats back into... Uh, Iranian water. The Vincennes detected flight 655 immediately after takeoff and um, We're gonna have to explain a little bit (laughs) of stuff here So I think one of the one of the questions you asked earlier Well, you asked a question that that almost made me talk about this earlier, but Mm -hmm. I'm gonna talk about it now So there's this system that's called uh, IFF. It stands for identification friend or foe So Uh it's like a transponder in a plane that basically transponds like so you know whether that plane is uh, an ally or an enemy so, uh-huh. so it's like if, let, let's say you have an IFF receiver, I'll send you a code that's like, hey, I'm, I'm is, on your side. And
1: it, is it a code code? Like, or is it that, that only... Right, only, only they would know. Okay. So it's like a secret handshake. See, yeah, yeah, it's like, hey, hey, yeah. we're like, we're, we're, cool. we're okay. So... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was just imagining like planes passing each other and <laughs> like, hey, what's up? <laughs> like a little fist bump or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, there's a couple of different modes that IFF can work on. There's a mode 2 transponder, which indicates that it's a military vehicle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Civilian aircraft transpond in what's called mode 3. So that's an easy way to tell, right? It's like, oh, that's obviously a civilian aircraft, or that's definitely a military aircraft. For whatever reason, the Vincennes thinks that they see a mode 2 signal coming from the plane. So it's a... They think that it's military. Okay. And uh, they thought that it's uh, an Iranian F-14 Tomcat being deployed to attack the ship. Like I said, this is a relatively new ship. It has this system called uh, IGIS, which uh, is like a computerized system which is very new at the time. It can track like hundreds of targets simultaneously. Uh, the IGIS on the Vincennes identified Mode three. It's the humans who misinterpret it and think that it's transmitting Mode two. Oh, So the computer system on the on the boat knows that that's a civilian aircraft, but the crew members, whatever, in the heat of the moment, you know they're they're engaged with these small boats. They see this aircraft. They think it's a military aircraft coming uh, towards them. And ever since that incident I told you about before, with the USS Stark uh, the, the year before, uh, all aircraft in the area were supposed to be monitoring a special emergency frequency. Mm-hmm. So the Vincennes tries to contact three times on that frequency to make sure that that plane is uh, military or not, uh, but they don't get a response. Hmm. So they, after they don't get a response, the Vincennes fires two surface-to-air missiles at them, and one of them hits the airliner and it disintegrates immediately and uh, crashes you know, into the Gulf. And, Uh, kills everyone on board the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder are never found what's really interesting is i you know when i was doing some research on this i found uh that the navy actually had a a tv crew on board the vincennes at the time this happened because they were going to be filming a documentary about everything that was going on in the gulf and there's footage of the missiles being launched and the crew finding out that they shot down what they think is a military plane and being Uh really happy and then realizing like oh no it's a civilian plane and everyone's just like so they, they really have upset. all those reactions. Yeah, that the reactions all recorded. Uh, it's really really interesting. And, and maybe, so maybe we'll maybe we'll put it on our social channel so yeah. people can find. So if you, we'll tweet it uh, at uh, Black Box down Pod, uh, So follow there if you want to see some of that footage.
1: Uh, and so this is U.S. Sh- ship shooting down an Iranian civilian Airliner. plane. Yes, correct. And this is in 1988. So I'm trying to think of my history.
0: Are we allies with Iran at th- or no. not at this point? No. Uh, this is the, this is probably during the height of like the Ayatollah Khomeini era uh-huh. when, uh, you know, t- tensions were really bad. And after the uh, Islamic Revolution in 1979, which deposed the American backed shah, then that's when um, uh, Iran was no longer really an ally of ours. Gotcha. But that's, that's we'll start a history podcast someday. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about all the background that leads to all of these, all of these uh, fucked up things. So anyway, the Pentagon released a statement uh, describing that the Vincenza tried to make contact multiple times and mistaken the airliner for an F-14. And eventually there's a report called the Fogarty Report, uh, named after Admiral William Fogarty, which stated that the flight was indeed on a normal commercial flight path airway and was squawking in mode 3. But on August 18th, Fogarty also stated that Iran must share responsibility for the tragedy by hazarding one of their civilian airliners by allowing it to fly at a relatively low altitude air route in close proximity to hostilities that had been ongoing. So basically he said it's also Iran's fault because yeah. they knew that there were hostilities going on at the time. So it's like, hey, all right, we, we may be messed up, but so did you. Right, which I mean, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. Anyway, uh, in 2000, the US government stated the incident may have been caused by what they call scenario fulfillment. So this basically happens when like people are put under pressure. And like they kind of fall back to like a training scenario, like believing everything's real. Oh, so they kind of just like they see a plane, and they're like, "Oh, you know, we're in we're in combat. Like that plane's an enemy. We need to shoot it
1: down." So it's just like training instincts, right? Not not really, uh, not really thinking, not really checking the precautions,
0: right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, in in that footage I was talking about earlier, there were a couple other ships in the area as well. There was the I, I believe it was the USS Montgomery and the USS Sides were also uh, deployed. At the time and the Vincennes was the one doing the attack in that footage you can you can hear the Vincennes communicating with the sides uh, asking for confirmation if that's a military plane or not and the sides has doubts oh and uh and and, and I believe uh, the either sides even says to confirm and make sure it's a military plane uh but you know uh tragedy still happened uh according to some crew member uh interviews I've read uh, from crew member on the sides they say that it didn't make sense to them because the airliner was moving at a relatively slow speed and climbing, whereas if it was a military aircraft that was attacking, it should have been going much faster and, and diving. It. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so in, the, in their minds, they thought it didn't quite add up and make mm-hmm. sense. But again, that goes back to maybe scenario fulfillment there. The crews in the middle of combat, they're fighting these small boats and they yeah. see a plane and they think it's, uh, it's something that's attacking them. So the Iranian government never accepts the excuse that the aircraft was misidentified and they argue it was negligence and recklessness that amounts to an international crime. Uh, they said the two other U.S. warships in the area, other than the ones I mentioned, the Sides of Montgomery, were able to positively identify the aircraft as civilian. Again, like I said, the, the, I, I've read some of the interview with the Sides crew members and they, are, they were very skeptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Iranian government said the U.S. Vincennes is able to handle simultaneous attacks from hundreds of aircraft and found this as an opportunity to show its stuff. The Iranian government also argues that even if the plane was a Tomcat, the Vincennes had entered Iranian waters and was in these waters when they launched the missile. And this makes the U.S. government responsible under international
1: law. Oh,
0: so yeah, they were in... They were in Iranian, Iranian waters. They had waters. followed these
1: these small boats into Iranian waters. Yeah, so that's even more reason why...
0: Right. And Iran pointed out the U.S. has steadfastly condemned the shooting down of aircraft, civil or military, by the armed forces of another state, citing Korean Airlines 007 as an example. So oh,
1: so it's... Yeah, it is similar because in the Soviet Union, they were like over Soviet Union... Area And then they got shut down and they're like you you messed this up and this is the same scenario right. Just just yeah, this time the US entered the other people's uh, waters and, and shot
0: it down And finally uh, Iran noted that Iraq was actually found fully responsible for attacking the USS Stark The previous one, attack I had talked about because the Iraqi pilot knew or should have known that he was attacking the US warship uh, I mean, this is all really complicated in February of 96 the US paid Iran 131.8 million dollars to settle a case brought by Iran in international court. Okay, so they… They they settled. Settled. Yeah. So a uh, very complicated situation. We could talk extensively about this one. I think of the three, these are all, I think, all three really interesting, very different scenarios. I think this last one is probably the one we could focus on. We could probably could make an entire episode just about this one because of how complex and how many moving parts there were, but uh, hopefully this is just like… A, An over a broad overview of what happened, but uh, I mean, it's it it continues to be a problem. Like we talked, we just
1: talked about it. the Ukraine international flight that just got shot, shot down by Iran earlier this year. Yeah, you know, what this made me think about is like World War II. Basically, the entire world mm-hmm. was at war, right? I mean, it was World War, right? <laughs> it's in it's in the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there were, all, I'm sure, a lot less commercial flights then, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just the right 1940s, new. late mm-hmm. 30s but how difficult it would like if there was a a world global conflict now, how difficult it would be to fly anywhere because Mm. like then most, there weren't that many like flights and stuff. But if there's that much conflict, how do you avoid? Well, I,
0: I, I, well, I assume, you know, in the event of a conflict like that, you would typically fly around it. Like they should have been doing in Eastern Ukraine where you, you should be avoiding that area because of conflict.
1: But like if it's uh, yeah, I'm just thinking like in terms of like, how global? If there was a global conflict and there's so many different places f- that are fighting and you don't know where battles are, it's like how difficult it would be to navigate they, they all would, of that. Uh, it, it's strange to think about and it's strange to say, but they would probably carve out areas and be
0: like, you know, no fighting there. <laughs> that that, <laughs> that that areas for for commercial airlines to to go through. Yeah, but still, it would be a risk. But you think that ideally there'd be enough technology and you would know. But like I said, it, it still it still, it, happens. It, it still yeah. happens. It's a it's a, it's a weird thing to think about. Yeah. This was a long episode, Chris. Yeah. So there's a lot of information. I was taking notes. You're taking notes. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, um, I think that about wraps up this episode of Black Box Down. Uh, As always, if uh, you enjoy it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Make sure you follow us on social channels at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, We'll post supplemental material there. If there's something we talk about, like video or photos, you should check it out. Uh, It helps add a little more backstory to the podcast. Mm -hmm. All right, well, uh, thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, thank you. And we'll uh, see you all next week.
1: Hey, guys. If you're all out of Black Box Down episodes and looking for something else to listen to, you should check out my other podcast, Good Morning from Hell. It's a comedy show where I'm dead and forced to interview everyone in hell as my eternal punishment. I'd recommend the episode Getting High with the Wright Brothers, which stars Gus as Orville Wright. And he tells us the true story of who invented the airplane. Just search for Good Morning from Hell wherever you listen to podcasts. You can even listen on your Google Home or Alexa. Use those smart devices and play something dumb. Thanks.